All right. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Last week, I made a podcast on the shadow, and I got a few interesting emails um, after the podcast and, and some comments. And I just kind of heard from people, you should say more. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I want to say more, but not directly related to the shadow. I guess indirectly. I want to talk more specifically about projections. I want to talk about projections in intimate relationships. I want to talk about what is a long-term healthy relationship. Is that, is, is that even possible to have a long-term healthy relationship? Because... I mean, just basic informal survey, how many of your friends are, or maybe you are, having trouble with long-term relationships, especially intimate relationships? And heterosexual or homosexual, um, it, it doesn't matter. It, relationships themselves are giving us trouble. And the culture and the cultural norms and the uh, systems like uh, churches and um maybe uh, cult cultural expectations have crumbled so much that we're in a brave new world. There's no doubt about that. I remember when I was at Marsil and uh, the, when I was a pastor there, and we were really struggling with uh, LGBTQ questions and inclusion, and um, as all churches were really around uh, all over the Western world, basically. And I remember a friend of mine telling me, hey, this is great, um, but you know, heterosexual relationships are in serious trouble. And uh, the big question in, in his uh, church community, a friend of mine was a pastor, was uh, open relationships. And he's like, I don't even know how to begin a conversation about, um, about healthy relationships anymore. And, and, you know, basic social science tells us when intimate relationships, especially when they involve kids, don't work very well, that the kids suffer. Now, all kids suffer, all right? And sometimes that suffering is like a thorn in the flesh that, that or like a goad that pushes you out into the world, into greater consciousness. So nobody escapes that, and no parental relationship is, is perfect, obviously. But... Um, don't you want a healthy enough relationship with your spouse or partner or whatever, boyfriend, girlfriend? Or do we just want kind of a, a paper-thin culture? And I don't think we want paper-thin relationships. I think that's even the obsession with, with these algorithms and online dating because there's a hunger there. And, and you could say the hunger is for hooking up. I don't think so. I think there is a deep um, desire for trusting, intimate, long-term relationships. And that's what I want to talk about today. And the title of the podcast, it's in my series, Stuff That Helps, is The Magical Other. And The Magical Other is a term, I think, coined by, but certainly promoted by, James Hollis. He's a, a psychoanalyst, a Jungian and prolific writer. His books are very accessible. I want to kind of popularize his ideas today. That's my, my serious stuff that helps is really popularizing ideas that I have found personally helpful. And I know people want to talk about this because 
I get emails about it <laughs> and I meet with people one-on-one and I lead retreats and programs and, and relationships are always, always, always part of the conversation. So let's turn some attention to it. And again, my podcast is Hints and Guesses. I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully giving a few hints and guesses that I have personally found helpful and dig further if you want. Um, so James Hollis, the magical other, I'll tell you what that term means in a minute. Um, as we begin to unpack it. And and let me say one thing. I want this podcast to be so helpful (laughs) that at the end of it, I'm going to give you three steps toward uh, a more adult relationship. (laughs) Actually, what James Hollis calls radical conversation. He says, a mature relationship is a radical conversation. And he he has three steps toward that end. And um, I found them helpful. And they continue to challenge me. And sometimes I have to go to the book, open it, read it, just to remind myself, okay, that's right. Um, What is mine to do here? And what am I not um, taking responsibility for in in my own relationship? I've been married for 20 some years. And, um, And anyone that's been married for a while knows that there are all kinds of Um, unfoldings and challenges and um, wrong turns and uh, surprises. And part of that, even the longevity, is a radical conversation. And um, I certainly want to grow up. I want to be as healthy as a human being as I can be and and want as healthy uh, a relationship as I can have, uh, as most people do. (laughs) So let's talk about it. So that's where we're going today. Check out my website, kendobson.com. I've got a couple of programs. I have a West Michigan seven, eight-month program in-depth, um, and we meet once a month. That's a small group. And I also have a version of that that I've, I'm doing online, which I did online last year. And it's about Descent to Soul. And um, what does a conversation about soul look like? And we explore um, stories and dreams and myths, and uh, we have a we have a kind of council. I mean, we check in. Um, it, it all the details are on my website, including a few little hints of what the terrain is like. So, if that interests you, um, check it out. And as I mentioned in my last podcast, I still have some spots um, on my Israel trip, which is January two through eleven, two thousand twenty. Um, just, yeah, just check in with yourself. Is that something that I want to do? And is that even possible for me to do right now? And the details are also on my website. It, you can send me an email and I'll <clears throat> send you anything else. Okay, so where to start? I think I'd like to just try to say in my own words a little of what James Hollis is talking about from his book, The Eden Project, In Search of the Magical Other. So he talks about the notion of the magical other in this book and also in one other one, which is called The Middle Passage, which is an incredible book. Um, That's his term for the midlife crisis. He calls it The Middle Passage. So... um, I think if I can try to be direct, the idea of the the magical other is an internal concept in your psyche. 
And it contains, or it's something like an image that is an amalgam of your mother, your father, your earliest experiences of things like abandonment or overwhelmment, your earliest attachments or lack thereof, um, your cultural milieu at an age when um, there was less differentiation between you and other. Sometimes that's called itself magical thinking. Um, This idea that, um, or like when a kid says, takes to heart, what did I do to cause my parents to get divorced? And we would say, how can you, you know, how can you make, how can you draw such a conclusion? Well, the early stage consciousness called magical thinking is the kind of consciousness that has less differentiation between me and other. And in that sense, what happens to us early in life creates certain um, expectations, patterns, um, you could even say neural grooves. I can't, I can't prove that necessarily in terms of brain science, but um, you, you learn to react to the world, particularly around intimate relationships in a certain way because of this amalgam. And nobody gets out of it. Nobody gets a pure... I don't care if you were raised in a, in a household that was very difficult with a lot of suffering or a household that, where there was a lot of love and a lot of nurturing. You still uh, develop habits and patterns and something like an amalgam. And this amalgam becomes an image. And what is it that your... This, how does this image work, you could say, um, you could ask... It's um, a psychological image that gets activated when we're in intimate relationships. Suddenly, all these influences start firing off. So that's on the one hand, a sort of collection of our early history. You can also add to that what uh, Carl Jung calls the animus and the anima. And... Again, part of this image of the magical other is influenced by the animus and the anima. Now, what is that? The anima or animus is the counter-sexual element of our own psyche. So I'm just giving, uh, that's straight, straight from Jung. How else could we say that? It is um, the inner masculine and the inner feminine. Typically, though not always, of the opposite gender, um, so like in my case, I have an anima, and this is the counter-sexual image um, or the sacred feminine that I hold within. It's, it's in my psyche. So the psyche itself in that sense is both masculine and feminine. And it's so interesting because as, as science develops um, and we know about human development and, for example, all... Um, tiny infants all start off female until certain chromosomes are fired and then um, half of us approximately become male. Even biologically, there's a blurring of masculine and feminine. And and so we can expect the same in the psyche. So everybody's psyche, no matter what, has a masculine dimension and a feminine dimension and the anima and the animus. And what is often the case, and again, Please, not make it a universal here because it depends. 
But what needs to be cultivated later in life, um, if you're a male, for example, you need to cultivate your inner uh, anima. You need to date your own uh, uh, feminine aspect of your own psyche. And same the other way around. If you are a female, you need to date and get to know the masculine dimension, your animus. And oftentimes the anima and the animus, at least in, in Jungian dream work, um, appear in your dreams. <laughs> and uh, sometimes consistently as a single image um, or a single person that you keep encountering in your dreams. But oftentimes, at least in my case, um, certain um, there's a certain pattern that appears that is particularly feminine. We could say, what is this? Um, well, from a psychological point of view, it's an image of the anima. It's an image of the counter-sexual dimension of my own psyche that needs my attention. Now, what happens then with the magical other is this. Your amalgam of your anima or animus, your masculine or feminine internally, which might be wildly um, your own. In other words, uh, everyone has a unique expression of such a thing. Combined with your early childhood experiences and um, what happened to you and your patterns and habits and so forth and so on, that amalgam creates something like a magical other, that there must be someone out there, that's where it goes, there must be someone out there that matches this. Now, this all goes on in the unconscious. You are not aware of it. And we all carry it, which is exactly why you can meet hundreds and hundreds or thousands of people in your life of the same sex or of the opposite sex, then, and only a few of them you fall in love with, or there's an activation or something fires up and you cannot predict it. Now, what depth psychologists say is what is being activated is, okay, you might like something about the other person, but what's being activated is the magical other and the magical other projection. This person will complete me, fulfill me, be there for me. It's my better half. Um, it's what I've always been searching for. And hence the the roller coaster ride of falling in love and falling out of love begins with these kinds of projections the magical other is just a projection so that's my way of putting it and that might not be 100% clear let me look at some hollis i underlined a few things swing straight um, to the horse's mouth here so here's his definition um of the magical other. He says, the great false idea that drives humankind is the fantasy of the magical other. The notion that there is one person out there who is right for us, who will make our lives work, a soulmate who will repair the ravages of our personal history, one who will be there for us, who will read our minds. That's one of my best. That's, I love that part. Read because that's often what we expect, who will read our minds, know what we want, and meet those deepest needs. And part of you might be thinking, yeah, damn straight. That's what I'm looking for. And another part of you, well, wait a minute. Can one person do all that stuff? Can anybody do all that stuff? Meet all of our needs? He goes on. Also, 
Be a good parent who will protect us from suffering, and if we're lucky, spare us the perilous journey of individuation, which again is a, is a Jungian term. Um, and in fact, James Hollis calls it the myth, the, the myth of individuation or a myth for our times, becoming an individual. It's, and um, anyway, I don't need to go down that, that whole rabbit trail right this second, but becoming who you truly are is another way of saying it will keep us from having to go on that journey is the kind of exchange that's taking place. Now, he also calls, um, the title of this book about the magical other is called The Eden Project. And here's what he suggests. He says that the Eden story, without going deep into, you know, cultural background reading and Hebrew and blah, 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 just in its most basic sense, is a story of two people getting kicked out of paradise. Another way of saying it is two people becoming conscious out of the womb of unconsciousness where everything is great and everything is perfect and all your needs are met and it's warm and um, you're in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of internal dark cosmos where everything is exactly as you need it. That's the womb. And you have no knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the tree of life is pumped into you through the umbilical cord, that kind of thing. And part of the terror of being a human being is that everybody, everybody, everybody gets kicked out of the garden. And we become conscious of our own mortality, of our own darkness, and our own light. And we can never go back. In fact, in the Eden story, there's an angel with a flaming sword. But the pull to go back remains strong for everybody. One part of us, and we could even say, and I would like to suggest, and so does Hollis, the childlike part of us wants to return to the womb where all of our needs are met, where mom and dad are perfect. And that kind of desire to return to unconsciousness, we could call merging. Just like you at one time were one with your mother, that is the kind of childlike or infant Infantilism would not be another way of putting it, infant-like desire to return to the womb, to merge. And we then put that on another human being. We put that on, you know, some girl we met in chemistry class. If I could only merge with her, the holes I feel in my life, actually, and even the terror of consciousness itself, I can go back to sleep in a sense, and merge and become one. It's even, I think, I think it's misunderstood, but even the phrase, the two shall become one, what does that mean exactly? And I don't even want to spend too much time on that, but just think about it. What, what is that exactly saying, the two? Well, it's, it's two-part. You shall leave your father and mother, which most people never do, psychologically, and the two shall become one, or one flesh. And I mean, it, on, on a surface level, it, it, it hints to a kind of, um, you know, intimacy and union and, um, and sexuality. But is that really true? The two become one? Um, or is that part of the illusion that James Hollis is talking about? And I, my, my guess is, at least our understanding, our Western understanding of it, is that it's part of the illusion that I can merge with this other person and really not have to take responsibility and not leave my father and mother psychologically um, 
and this person will take care of all my needs. And if they don't, I, oh, what a bitter disappointment. And I must have married the wrong person. This is not, this is not what I signed up for. These are phrases I often hear. Um, she's not who I thought she was or, she, or he changed um, and whatever, so forth and so on. And oftentimes then the cycle starts over again. Now, I hope you're tracking with me, at least in part. Now, let me add something here. What's wrong with this? <laughs> Nothing. What's wrong with the magical other projection? Nothing. Not initially. In fact, Hollis says all relationships, all relationships of the intimate variety, and probably all relationships, period, even close friendships, begin in projection. In other words, all these unclaimed elements of who we are, hidden in the psyche or in the shadow, like I talked about last week, um, our own greatness, our own creativity, our own um, anger, our own um, deviousness, our own wildness, our own freedom, our own femininity, our own masculinity, our, our own... Um, archetypal qualities uh, like king or warrior or lover or healer or, or these unclaimed parts of who we are, we see in other people first. We say that person, that person there, and we want to be near it. And that's what I, I, I mean, I included this last week, uh, Mary Louise von Franz, this is uh, Carl Jung's student and later colleague, um, said, thank God for projections. There, there's not another way for this unclaimed material. That's how rich your psyche is. And maybe I should have started there. You are a complicated person, unbelievably complicated. You are a profound mystery. And you will always be a mystery, even to yourself, you will be a mystery. And if you're in any kind of uh, deep friendship or partnership with somebody, they are a mystery. So in any case, you are a complex uh, beautiful and mysterious being, but a lot of your own um, darkness and light is hidden from you, especially early on. That's just part of growing up. It has to remain hidden. It helps us. Um, it, it helps us. Um, I don't know. Join society. So uh, up to a certain point where we can really begin to reclaim who we are and and to step out in a much more. Um, brave way into the world in a much more authentic way instead of um, just hiding behind personas and masks, that kind of thing. So um, there's nothing wrong with it. How amazing, even if like um, you're, you're looking back on a relationship and it's like, how can I be so stupid? I mean, I, I married my dad or, or I married my mom and, and how blind and how... Uh, just good. Really what's happening is that something of the other some was activating these unclaimed bits in who we are. Now, like I said before, what typically happens is we then blame the other. First we seek what we seek the gifts within in the other, and when they disappoint us, we seek another. <laughs> that's the cycle around and round and round. Here we go. That's like we wouldn't have pop music if if there was no magical other projection, we wouldn't have Hollywood, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have television shows. So there's nothing wrong with it, but the question becomes, do you want to grow up? That's always the question. Do you want to grow up? Do you want the other person, your significant other, to carry all this stuff the rest of your life? 
I need you to fix me, um, be there for me, be my mom, be my dad, never leave me, never betray me, always tell me the truth, um, fulfill all my fantasies. I need you to carry all this stuff so that I don't have to. No, you, in, a, in a direct sense, no one would say that. No, we, we want to carry what is ours to carry so that we can be in a real relationship with another person instead of in relationship with the fantasy. So the hard part comes in every relationship is when the romantic fantasy spins out of control and breaks up. That is what is going to happen. And I know there are books and techniques and rekindle the fire, but much of that is keep the fantasy alive. It's going to happen. It's probably happened to you. And thus begins the opportunity to take responsibility. What is mine to carry? What unowned bits of who I am do I need to, to take responsibility for? Um, I thought you were good at money and I need you to because I'm the creative type and I, I can't take care of myself. Um, I need you to do this for me. And if you won't do it, I'm just going to find somebody else or, or whatever. Just start filling in the blank of, of your own expectations. Some of them are probably more subtle than, and even hidden um, on the surface level, but some of them might be, might be, might be more obvious to you. Yeah, actually, I do have these expectations. So um, let's go back to, to some Hollis. I want to read you some lines here. Here's a, here's a good line. At that moment, one falls out of love, as the culture has it, because such a large hope has collapsed. More than half of all popular songs mourn this loss of the beloved other. Who are you? I don't know you anymore. You've changed. You've broken my heart. That is, you have failed my Eden project. But since my, but since my Eden project, my desire to go home through you, is essentially unconscious, I am unaware of its origin in myself and can only blame you for the great disappointment. That's his way of saying um, the cycle tends to turn over. I mean, how many people do you know um, swore after their one intimate relationship fell apart, that they would definitely not end up with anybody like them, only anyone like their old partner, only to end up right back in the same situation. Because these unconscious for forces, when, when, when no attention is given to turning toward them and owning some of this stuff back and withdrawing some of these uh, projections, when none of that work is done, it's just going to be transferred onto somebody else. Um, and means you're set you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of, of of a revolving door of similar patterns. Um, okay. Here's another line about projection. And I, I mean, I probably should have said this at the beginning. I don't like this. I mean, I'm not happy that this is the case. I think this is the case. I think Hollis is telling the truth. And I think we have a uh, hundred plus years of really good depth psychology to back it up. This is not just one dude riffing, um, but it's not good news. I mean, it's not happy news, we should say. You know, um, I'm not going to be on Oprah talking about the magical other projection. I don't, well, I'm picking on Oprah. She actually has some really interesting stuff from time to time. But I just mean it's not in the popular culture because it's so um, countercultural to the romantic fantasy that uh, Western culture is so addicted to. So here's, a, here's another line about projection. 
Since the content of every projection is some aspect of ourselves, what we are, quote, seeing in the other is something of ourselves. That's what I mean disappointing here. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm seeing myself in a way? Yeah, you, you, th this quality that you're, you're so insistent the other have is simply mirroring something that's unowned in you. That's the suggestion here. It may seem ludicrous, he goes on, but in this sense, what we fall in love with is some aspect of ourselves as reflected back to us from the other. I mean, and that, I mean, it's, it, that sounds like so, I mean, that's so humiliating. I'm falling in love with myself. I mean, it sounds kind of narcissistic, but in a way, yeah, um, you're falling in love with yourself <laughs> and insisting that this person must carry these unknown aspects of, of who I am. That's what he's talking about. Maybe I'll just uh, read you a little bit more from the next couple paragraphs here, and then I will turn toward, well, then what the hell is a healthy relationship then? In the course of an ordinary lifetime, one meets thousands of others with whom one could have a personal relationship. Yet only a certain percentage of those, perhaps several hundred, embody the capacity to activate our unconscious images of self and other. That's that fire, you know, that's that eros that just cuts you through like a, like, like shot from a bow, you know, runs you straight through the heart. They provide the hook. Jung suggests, to catch hold of our far-flung psychic lifelines. Remember that these imagos are comprised predominantly of our primal experiences of relationship, mom and dad, and the dynamics between them, set in psychic granite long ago and far away. When we meet these candidates, energy is exchanged, at least from us to them, and occasionally reciprocal. But when our projection hits the other and bounces back, we experience a kind of resonance, uh, an intimation of wholeness. And this is a form of homecoming simply because we are reconnecting with, falling in love with ourselves. I mean, that, that is insane. That resonance. You know, when people say, you know, I just knew. And it was like, like a tuning fork, you know. And... It's not the same thing as saying that meeting with another is something false. No, something real is happening. But what is real is so much more interesting beneath the surface that these far-flung psychic lifelines that Jung is talking about, these possibilities, these capacities get um, rung and there's a resonance. And, but what's bouncing back are all these um, unknown parts unknown expectations and unknown desires and unknown capacities, which is really actually good news because when you fall in love, even if it's not reciprocated, you have an opportunity to take a look into the well and say, what is in there? What am I putting on this other person that I can own myself? Becomes the question. So maybe, um, maybe I've said enough about projection. And give me one second. Okay, I found a few more things because I want to shift the conversation to what then a healthy relationship looks like. I've just been spinning off of projections and I could have given you really hundreds of examples, but it's not that hard to understand. You, I'm sure you get the basic notion of it. Um, so let's turn toward some solutions here. 
It takes great courage to ask this fundamental question. I'm quoting from Hollis. What I am asking of this other that I ought to be doing for myself. What am I asking of this other that I ought to be doing for myself? If, for example, I am asking the other to be mindful of my self-esteem, I have a project waiting unaddressed. Now, how many relationships have you been in, or your friends, or I know a guy who, are have extremely high expectations that the other must meet my self-esteem and be my self-esteem um, IV drip, and that's your full-time job to pump me up. He's saying, if that's the kind of expectation and you need the other person to prop up your self-esteem, okay, now you know what the project is. You have a project, an unaddressed project that only you can address. He goes on, if I am expecting the other to be the good parent and take care of me, because maybe my mom and dad never did, or maybe they did take care of me and I never want to leave that nest, then I have not grown up, he says. If I'm expecting the other to spare me the rigor and terror of living my own journey, then I have abdicated from the chief task and the most worthy reason for my incarnation on this earth. That he's saying something that is so profound, that intimate relationships, when they never grow up, they keep us from going on our own journey from the chief task of our lives to find out who we are and what we're supposed to bring forth, the reason for our incarnation. We're, we're needing someone else to tell me that. It's almost like saying something like, um, uh, in order to know who I am on the deepest level, I need to be in relationship with you. You answer that question for me. It's... It, Without you, I will never know. It's like that line from um, Jerry Maguire, you complete me. See, that's a magical other fantasy right there. You complete me. No, Jerry Maguire, you complete yourself. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have an intimate relationship and, um, and fall in love and be a partner, but completion is not her responsibility. Sorry. You're just setting yourself up for the cycle to repeat itself when she fails you because she will. No one can live up to all of your fantasies and all of your magical expectations. Nobody, nobody. All right, I got to take a break. Go get my kid from school. All right. Now, let's get to some images and sayings and phrases about a healthy relationship, and then we'll get to... Three easy steps. But really, Hollis does lay out three suggestions. I want to start with Rilke, though. So here's a line from Rilke. I hold this to be the highest task of a bond between two people, that each should stand guard over the solitude of the other. This, I think, is a poetic way of describing what adult, healthy, intimate relationships can really look like. It is a kind of fierce solitude that one holds within oneself. 
I am responsible for my own life. And I am responsible for my own growth. And in this relationship, I take responsibility for continuing on my own path. And as far as the relationship goes, I stand guard over the solitude of the other, of the mystery that is before me. It's, I think it's a poetic way of describing what Hollis calls mutually separate journeys. And I think that phrase, I think, is probably what gives us trouble when we're locked in the fantasy. What do you mean, um, mutually separate journeys? I thought we're going on one journey. The two shall become and we shall be, the two shall become one and we shall be on the same journey. And I remember when my book came out, Bit by Camel, uh, because, I mean, it's kind of like a memoir-ish book, but the chapters are sort of divided up into sort of theological things that were giving me trouble and kind of worldviews or and ideas and uh, beliefs that I was outgrowing or were no longer working for me. And <clears throat> I think because I was direct about things I used to believe and no longer do, a lot of people who read the book and then interacted with me, like at readings I was giving or just online or um, even friends w would often say things like, hey, I'm with you, but my spouse or my partner is not on the same journey. And and I understand, I think, the the fear there. And what what might this mean is the next question. What if we're not on the same page? What I'm suggesting here is on the soul level, you are never on the same page. Not really. You are fiercely responsible for dating and falling in love with the aims of your own soul. That's your task and your journey. And as much as you guard that and protect that and commit to it, you also, I think, in a way, nod to the solitude of the other and become a kind of guardian for their journey. So it's two people going side by side. And perhaps they're on somewhat parallel tracks, you could say, but um, maybe that's not even the best metaphor. It's, um, it's something like my journey uh, plus your journey. The fact that we honor one another's paths creates a kind of third. That's what Hollis suggests. It's not one plus one equals the merging of one. It's one plus one equals a kind of third. And the third is the relationship, the way one honors the mystery of the other. And that's a lot scarier. It's also a lot more beautiful and soul-oriented. Here's a paragraph from Hollis. This understanding of relationship requires never-ending vigilance. It is so easy to regress, to impose our agenda on the other. We will do that anyway, willy-nilly, unconsciously, without meaning to, and can only hope later to recognize what we have done. Therein lies the ethical task of relationship. We say to ourselves, the projection I cast upon the other, this hidden agenda, needs to be withdrawn. It can be replaced by something richer. Through the enlargement which comes from the bridges of conversation, sexuality, the pooling of aspirations, and mutually separate journeys, one experiences the always evolving mystery of soul.
We are travelers, all and separately. We are thrown by fate into adjacent, adjacent seats on a flight to the coast. In our solitude, we may enhance the journey of the other, who may likewise enhance ours. We embarked separately, we disembark separately, and we head for our appointed ends separately. We profit greatly from each other without using each other. Our projections upon the other are inevitable, not bad really, for they enrich the journey. But what if we hold on to them? But if we hold on to them, they become diversions from our individual task. I think you're getting a sense for, I hope, the kind of thing that Hollis is arguing for. And here's where, as promised, I wanted to get as practical as possible. So this is from a different book, The Middle Passage, um, where he really describes radical conversation, that healthy long-term relationships require radical conversation. And the word radical is interesting because it really means root. That's the, that's the root of the word radical. It means rootedness, which is funny. I mean, in our, uh, in our culture, if something or someone is rooted, they're quite radical because we live in such an uprooted, crazy, um, I don't know, thin culture, I guess. So here's Hollis on, on three steps. Here's step number one. The partners must assume responsibility for their own psychological well-being. <laughs> I don't know why this makes me laugh because it's like, oh my God, that's right. And that's the hardest thing. The partners must assume responsibility for their own psychological well-being. Your partner, your uh, spouse, is not responsible for your psychological well-being. Your personal self-esteem project or your, um, or your growth or even your uh, to protect you and to never leave you or forsake you. You're responsible for your own psychological well-being. So step number one, so you wonder why, I mean, I first read that, I was like, God, all right. Um, all right, there it is. Am I going to turn toward that or not? So that's just step number one. Step number two, they must commit, the partners, they must commit to sharing the world of their own experience. All right, that's hard enough. Share the world of, in other words, what's it like to be you? And that's not easy. What's it like to be you is complicated. And there's a whole, um, you may, you may have a certain kind of um, intellectual intelligence, but really lack some emotional intelligence. And, and to really share what it's like to be you is to dive into other realms, <laughs> your imagination and your thinking and your feeling and your sensing. What is it like to be you? And to share it. But he has a little sort of, uh, the sentence is not over. They must commit to sharing the world of their own experience without reproaching the other for past wounds or for future expectations. I mean, put that on your bathroom mirror or whatever. Yeah, all right, I'm going to share what it's like to be, you, uh, to be me, <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to drag up past wounds and load in this, quote, sharing with a lot of future expectations. I need you to respond in a certain way if I'm going to uh, share what it's like to be me. 
Similarly, they are to endeavor to hear without feeling defensive the experience of the other. For me, this is really hard. All right, so what's it like to be you? Listen. And as soon as um, something is brought up that I don't like, that, that I think points the finger at me or something like that, I'm immediately defensive. I, I am very quick to defensiveness. So what is it? And that is not the same thing as hearing somebody. That's just defending yourself and usually defending your, your ego projects and your persona and um, whatever. You've got reasons why you act the way you act. Now, what's it like to be you and listening to that without defensiveness? That's the second step. These are, again, three steps toward radical conversation. Number three, they must c commit to sustaining such a dialogue over time. And, you know, Hollis says this not as a priest or a pastor, or I don't know if he's religious or not, or with some kind of agenda to save marriages or long-term relationships, but he just says it in such a direct way. You cannot have a radical conversation that is short-lived. It's just simply... Um, too full of early projections and expectations and fantasies. The only way to have a radical conversation is to sustain one over time. And I don't mean uh, you, or another way of saying it is it's not a weekend retreat. It's not um, date night. It's not, um, I don't know. It's just sustained conversation over time. And so calm down. That's what I hear. Calm the F down. Just, all right, these things take time. Only radical conversation, the full sharing of what it is like to be me while hearing what it is really like to be you can fulfill the promise of an intimate relationship. One can only engage in radical conversation if one has taken responsibility for oneself, has some self-awareness, and has the tensile strength to withstand a genuine encounter with the truly other. That's what it's like. To withstand the mystery of another, man, means you have to have found your feet in the first place. That's the image he gives here for a healthy relationship. One more little piece here. Loving the otherness of the partner is a transcendent event. For one enters the true mystery of relationship in which one is taken to the third place, not you plus me, but we who are more than ourselves with each other. I mean, um, it's not just, he's not just laying out practical ways of having a better relationship. He's talking about uh, living from the deep mystery of one's own soul as it encounters the deep mystery of another's soul. So, I don't know. Um, what would that look like? I mean, these three steps, and maybe I should summarize them real quick. I know you have like the 10-second back button if you want to hear them again, but I'll give them to you quickly. The partners must assume responsibility for their own psychological well-being, number one. Number two, they must commit to sharing the world of their own experience without reproaching the other for past wounds or future expectations. And they are to endeavor to hear without feeling defensive the experience of the other. And they must commit to sustaining such a dialogue 
over time. Only radical conversation, the full sharing of what it is like to be me while hearing what is really like to be you can fulfill the promise of intimate relationships. So to me, uh, is is sort of deflating as the magical other is and taking a look at it and listening to it and allowing oneself to be stripped of of one's own fantasies. As, as disappointing as that is, this is a fairly hopeful vision. All right, then how do we move forward? And, and I think it, he's, it's hopeful and radical at the same time. So I want to end with just um, maybe a couple more lines here from James Hollis. When relationship is not driven by need, but by caring for the other as other, then we are really free to experience him or her. When we let go of our projections, relinquish the going home project, we are free to love. When we are free to love, we are present to the mystery embodied by the other. Without such mystery, we are prisoners of childhood, trapped in the trivial. Blake the poet, said he could see eternity in a grain of sand, so we lesser mortals may glimpse the eternity in and through our beloved. This other, paradoxically, is a sacred vehicle toward ourselves, not because we use the other to serve our own narcissistic ends, but because he or she serves our deepest end by remaining wholly other. So I hope you heard something in here that is challenging and helpful. That's always a lovely combination. And thanks for listening to this podcast. I am continually surprised that, um, actually I'm not, I'm surprised that so many people download it, that, that I'm surprised by, but I'm not surprised that people are, are hungry for for depth. And I don't mean I'm like so deep. I just mean um, hungry for a, a kind of radical conversation, period, about God, religion, spirituality, death, relationships. So thanks for being a part of this. And special thanks to my Patreon supporters, my patrons. It's amazing that you can just um, ask for help and and people want to do it. So thank you. And if you want to become a Patreon uh, supporter, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson or the link is on my website. And any little bit helps go directly into making this content and creating this content. And most importantly, you if you like something on here or at least found it helpful in some way, share it with somebody. That's the way this thing grows. So anyway, I hope... Um, I hope you have the courage to continue and um, to take responsibility for your own psychological and spiritual well-being and uh, face courageously the others in your life. Peace.